you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 are our focal passages this morning. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Super Bowl Sunday today, so I know uh, a lot of you are interested. Eagles or Patriots, Chapel Choir, Middle School Choir, you did a great job, Eagles or Patriots. Any opinion? Eagles? Eagles? Really? Really? Like in, in good... Ladies, eagles, eagles, really and truly. Okay, wow, that's bold right there. So many people are rooting for the eagles. I'm rooting for the eagles. Nick Foles to undermine the, the golden boy Tom Brady to overthrow the evil empire that we know as the New England <laughs> Patriots. But I, I, I think the Patriots are probably going to win. But uh, some of you uh, watch the Super Bowl with interest and you know the quarterbacks, you know the players. There are, there's another kind of Super Bowl spectator that is much more interested uh, that the DVR is set to see what happens with This Is Us that is right after the Super Bowl. I, I, heard, some, I heard some amens coming around the sanctuary with that. Many of you have already thrown away your crock pots, uh, wondering how that could have happened to Jack right there, but... Uh, uh, no, this is us fans around here. Some of you know what I'm talking about right here. If you know what I'm talking about, you might have seen this week that Tom Hanks, the Tom Hanks, has signed on to play Mr. Rogers in a biopic that they're going to do. Fred Rogers, there's going to be a movie. Tom Hanks is going to be Mr. Rogers. I vividly remember going to my great aunt's house in the summer. She would keep kids, and we would stay with her in, in Mississippi. The public broadcasting station there would show Mr. Rogers at 12 o'clock. And so I was fixated. I didn't watch him really that much growing up, but I was fixated with this sort of ritualistic thing that he would do. He would come in. He had this pattern that he would do. He would talk to the camera in the same way. He would end his show by sitting down, taking off the shoes that he had put on 30 minutes earlier. He would go to the closet. He would hang up the cardigan that he had put on 30 minutes earlier, put the jacket on that he had taken off, and then he would look into the camera, and every day he would say something like this. You have made this day a special day. Just by you being you. There's no person in the whole world like you. And then he would look, and no matter what anybody had said to a child that was watching his show, no matter their heritage, their race, no matter the socioeconomic background of that child, he would say, I like you just the way that you are. 900 episodes, 30 years, Mr. Rogers would stare in that camera and he, and he would tell to any person that was watching that you matter, just like you are. Not how someone says that you need to be, not what you need to look like, not what you need to think like, but you, just as you are, you matter. You know this about Fred Rogers, don't you? You know that he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. You know he was a decorated World War II veteran. You know that at lunch he would go to Pittsburgh Theological Seminary taking classes that, that underneath those 900 episodes, underneath uh, 30 years of, of that program were the very foundational implications of these verses that we read here in Genesis chapter 1, these five verses starting in verse 26. Give us the basis that you matter. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, in verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, in verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Dawson, if you're here this morning, and to all the people that are not here this morning, to every person that wakes up this morning and breathes air, there is a truth from this passage that we need to be reminded of, that we matter. You specifically matter because of where you come from. You matter because of where you come from. Our middle school choir, our our chapel choirs just let us. And it is very important that you guys understand that you matter because of where you come from. Like you grow up in the South, and there's the only way that we know how to talk to each other is to build some type of commonality of where, where are you from? One of the first questions that you ask a person in the South is, where's home? You're on a plane, the only way you know how to talk to someone is to say, well, where, where's home? Where are you from? I get this all the time now that I've been the pastor here for six months. I have tons of conversations with people at ball fields or just out and about where people will say, where are you from? Where's home for you? They're not asking, where did you pastor prior to coming to Dawson? They want to know where my roots are. And the strangest thing, living in Alabama for six months, I didn't anticipate this, but anytime I tell them I'm from Mississippi, they get this look on their face. They are so jealous that I am from Mississippi here in Alabama. (laughs) I didn't anticipate that, but I get it all the time. You're from the Mississippi? Oh, I wish I was from Mississippi. I really wish I was, but I didn't have the privilege to be from Mississippi. I'm like, I'm proud to be a Mississippian, but there are a lot of verbal jabs that I've gotten over six months. And so, hey, I get it. I understand. I can hold my own with that. So now you might be from Phoenix City, you might be from Mobile, you might be from Winfield, Alabama, you, you might be right here from Jasper, you might be from Gwynn, you might, I don't know where you are from. And in this room, there's a diversity of backgrounds. I mean, we could poll it, and a lot of you are Vestavia and Homewood and Birmingham. I mean, that might get the majority here, but there's a diversity of places where you're from. We got some out-of-staters here, we got some in-staters here But it doesn't really matter where we are from because what matters when we think about our value isn't in our earthly origin, but rather in our eternal origin. I know where you're from. All of us in this room, we share a a common eternal origin in the creative, originating mind of a triune God. 
Verse 26 is so clear. Let us make man in our image. God said this. He spoke to us, wondering uh, where you're from. Our passages before us this morning are so clear. Now, the pronouns in this passage give a lot of speculation. You'll, You'll see God speaking, and then he uses the pronoun us. He uses the pronoun our. So they're plural pronouns when God is speaking. Old Testament scholars commenting on these passages oftentimes will say there, that there may be this majestic plural, that there's an angelic host that is with God the Father there. And maybe, maybe that's so. But as New Testament believers, as New Testament Christians looking back upon this passage, we have great clarity that the our and the us of this passage is the triune God. We are created in the image of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's there in verse 3. He's hovering. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14 of John 1. And the Word, in the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson in the message, and the Word moved in to our neighborhood. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're created in the image of this relational triune God. That is clear for all of us here this morning as we look at this passage here. Where do you come from? We come from the originating, creative design of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, not everybody believes that. No, but not everybody believes that today. Not everybody believed that then. I told you last week as we were looking at this passage, I know everyone wasn't here last week. But we were talking about what are the distinctive differences between this story and other rival creation stories. This wasn't the only story that was floating around that gave a case for where we come from. There was the Babylonian creation myth. There was the Egyptian creation myth. There was the Canaanite creation myth. The Israelites, they were one nation their rebellion, their sinfulness, they were divided. And then the Babylonians came in and they took them captive and they exiled them away. So let's imagine an eight-year-old boy growing up with faithful Israelite parents in Babylon. He's going to hear the Enuma Elish. He's going to hear, he's going to hear the Babylonian creation account that would go something like this, that there was this God named Marduk, and Marduk had these two deities, mom and dad, Tiamat and Apsu. And so this God, Marduk, kills his mother, slices her in half. The top half becomes the heavens. The bottom half becomes the earth. I talked about that last week. In contrast to the symmetry and the order of the creation story in the Bible. But there's more to the story. Because that little boy, growing up in Babylonian, uh, Babylonian exile, is going to hear the rest of that story. That he is there and he really doesn't matter. Because all of, human, all of humanity is ultimately just slaves for the gods. So the rest of the story was Marduk looks down at the bottom carcass of his mother that he creates the earth out of, and he says, you know something, I've got to populate this place with people because there's a lot of work that needs to be done there, and I don't want to do it. He's going to sit up there, removed in a loft, so he creates humanity as as slave labor, and so this eight-year-old boy comes home and says, guess what I heard 
And his mom and dad have to say, well, no, there's a better story. You've heard that story, but there is a true story. You are not here as slave labor, but you are here out of the creative, originating, originating power of God. This means you matter. Not everybody believed that then. Not everybody believes that today. There are rival stories. There, there are competing narratives for creation that say that we are here solely by accident that there is no God in the creation story, so henceforth there is no purpose to your life beyond what you can touch and, and hold here. There is a materialist worldview that, that has its agenda to, to clearly articulate what life means when there is no God. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher early 20th century, 1903, he pins some of the most penetrating, poignant words that summarize what it means to hold a godless view of creation. What would this mean for you? What would it mean for me? This is what he said, man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his love and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental Collocations of atoms, no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins only, he says, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of, notice what he says, unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. This is a bleak picture. But this is your picture if you don't believe this. You pretend all you want to, but, but, but creation without God, humanity without the originating force of a creative God is left to what? And Russell, he, he describes what is left and he says, let's build our lives on this truth that there is no hope beyond tomorrow. That there really is no hope in today that all of life's achievements, all that we do means anything more than today. So eat, drink, and be merry. There's a better story. There is the true story that, that is here in Genesis chapter 1 and it is sung about in Psalm 8 and we stand on it because this is the only scaffolding that is not rickety and will not collapse underneath us. And it goes like this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you, you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you 
care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What do we say to this? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Dawson, you matter because we know where you come from. You matter because you're not a mistake. You matter because you're not an accident. You matter because there is a divine purpose behind every person in this room and every person in this world. You matter because you are his created in his image. You matter because I know where you come from. Because the Bible has told me so. You matter because of where you come from, but you matter because of the intent of our creator. Let's, let's look closely at verses 26 through 28. Let's look at 26, 27, and 28 here. Look at 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to know that you're created in the image of God? What is the intent of our creator? Well, one, we want to say that the Bible uses image and likeness. We don't need as some theologians for the last 2,000 years have, have improperly put a dichotomy between image and likeness. These are synonyms. We could expand upon that. We don't have time to do that. But image and likeness aren't to be divided. They are the same thing. So we say the image of God, the likeness of God, we're speaking of the same thing here. It isn't that the likeness of God has, has been something that we have left after the fall, but we retain the image. We retain these things, although they are marred by the fall. It's also important to understand that male and female are created in the image of God. It isn't that men are created in the image of God and then females are created in the image of man. No, it's male and female created equally in the image of God. So there is a dignity in both sexes here at the outset of Genesis chapter 1. So then the question becomes, what does it mean to be created in the image of the likeness of God? What does it matter for your life and my life? Important question, so let's answer the first. What does it mean? There are three points that I want us just to, just to ponder with this wonderful phrase of the image of God. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, one thing that we can discover is uh, just from human observation, to be created in the image of God means that we have rationality. To be created in the image of God means that there's a rationality that is inherent to humans that is distinct in all of creation here upon the earth. So what do I mean by that? Well, St. Augustine, 5th century, Bishop of North Africa, uh, Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, he would say, looking upon this very verse here, that to be created in the image of God means that we have will, we have memory, we have intellect. This is, distinguishes us from other creatures upon this earth. I mean, there are a lot of things that your dog can do but your dog doesn't get a symposium of other dogs and design Apple Watches and then market them and sell them and has like a customer service unit to, to repair them. I mean, the, your dog is great. I know you love your cat, but you stick that cat in front. I know your cat is very intelligent. I know your cat can read your mind. I know all those kinds of things about your cat. But you stick your cat in front of your computer and you will not in a decade, you will not in a few years get a tell of two cities out of your cat. You're just not going to get it. Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5, you're not going to find that out of your cat no, longer, no matter how long you put it there. You go to the Birmingham Zoo, 
You're not going to have the reptiles gathering together in this kind of symposium reflecting upon what does it mean not to be created in the image of God? We feel left out here. I mean, you do not find that in animal creation. So there is a sense of rationality that distinguishes you, distinguishes me, it distinguishes us as we're creating the image and likeness of God. But it's more than that. There's not only rationality, but there's relationality. What do I mean by that? Well, again, go back to this passage here. Notice in verse 27, the type, I mean the literal type of the text. Notice how it's indented. Notice how there is a sense where it's set apart. If you're in the ESV or any other translations, really you're going to see this. That is saying that there is stylized language here. It's to indicate there is Hebrew poetry at work. Two times, you see the repetition created in the image of God. The third time, you see an expansion, male and female, Hebrew poetry, again, it doesn't rhyme, it repeats and expands. So there's something inherent in the way we receive this in Scripture that tells us a part of being created in the image of God is male and female, being created male and female. So again, going back to the pronouns, our, us, God is eternally community. He is an eternal community. There's always been Father. There's always been Son. There's always been Spirit. It wasn't that God the Father sat back one day before creation and said, I am immensely lonely here, so I will begot, uh, or beget my Son, Jesus Christ. It wasn't that he sat back, a, a lone, solitary Father, and said, I need, I need a Spirit too, to, to be able to, to fill this Trinity out here. There's always been Father. There's always been Son. There's always been Spirit. So you are created. I am created. All of humanity is created in the image of a relational God. So a part of our disposition is that we need one another to isolate. This is what sin does. Satan, when, when he has a foothold in your life and my life, one of the byproducts is always to isolate us always to isolate us from community, always to isolate us from friends, because he knows we flourish when we're in community. And the church, not marriage, not family, first and foremost, but the church is God's design for human flourishing. So it isn't that to fully be in the image of God, you've got to be married. No, whether you're a teenager this room in this room, whether, whether you are single and you've never been married or whether you're divorced or whether you're widowed, whether you are a couple this morning that do not have children, whether you're a couple this morning that have a lot of children, whether you're grandparents in this room, the church is God's design for us to be in relationship with one another. That's why life groups are so vitally important in this church because that is the place of true community. That is the place where you this last hour, for those of you that were in those life groups, you're praying for one another. You'll have opportunities to serve with one another. There's true family with one another in those groups. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not a part of one of our life groups, we want you to be a part of one of those, not for statistical growth, but because you are created in the image of God. John McCain, many of you know, spent five years of his life as a prisoner of war. Some of you know that two years of his life was in solitary confinement. McCain had horrendous things happen to him when he was a prisoner of war. Both of his arms were broken in the torture that he received. One of his legs was broken. One of his arms healed back and was broken again. So all of the things that really could have been done 
to humiliate a person, to humiliate a prisoner, McCain experienced personally. But notice what he says about solitary confinement. He says this, solitary confinement is an awful thing. It crushes your spirit, weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. Why is McCain personally saying this? Because he understands personally in a way that most of us, if not any of us in this room, could be able to relate to, that when you are isolated, there is a sense of our humanity being broken, marred in this horrendous way, because you are created for that person sitting next to you. Whether that's a son, whether that's a daughter, whether that's a friend, whether that's a husband, whether that's a wife, that person you need relationality, rationality, responsibility. Again, looking at this passage in verse 26, verse 28, I want to make sure we understand the context of Genesis chapter 1. In that ancient Near Eastern world, kings would erect statues. Pagan kings. Not like godly kings, just pagan kings. We, can, we see archaeological artifacts of this. That kings would erect these statues and they would put them all throughout their territory. A king could finite, could only be in one place, but that king would erect the statue and would put it in the far reaches of his territory to say that the power and authority of the king is upon this place. There would be a designation of responsibility given to those in that place to to work and to operate under the king's authority. And so you have a responsibility, I have a responsibility. Adam and Eve were given a responsibility as those creating the image of God. And we read about it in verse 26. And then in verse 28, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 28, we get this repetition. He adds to it, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. But then what does he repeat? Have dominion. So there's a sense in which in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were designated to be image bearers of the king upon on high and to be the ones that had dominion over that that he was entrusting to them. Now, what does this mean for your life and what does this mean for my life? Well, let's just sum it up. Creating the image of God, male and female, both sexes equally uh, important to understand with dignity created in his image, that image has an aspect of rationality. It has an aspect of relationality. It has an aspect of responsibility that we have. We're called to reflect his glory. So it is important for all of us to understand that how we treat others matters, no matter who that other is. How we treat others, based upon this passage, matters. All humans possess the image of God. James chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that the image of God still is retained in a human. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 tells us that. So James 3 9, Genesis 9 6, it's marred, it's blighted, it's in need of structural, spiritual repair, but it is present. And so, how we speak of others how we treat others, regardless of their heritage, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion, regardless of their profession, we are called to treat others with dignity and respect because we know where they're from and we know the intent of their creator. Even the atheist who vehemently denies the existence of God is created in the image of the very God he denies the existence of. 
That neighbor of yours who faithfully adheres to another religion outside of Christianity is created in the image of God. The God revealed in this Bible. That friend of yours, that coworker of yours whose political views are completely different than yours, you are called to treat that person with dignity and respect. Why? Because you know where they're from and you know the intent of their creator. And so this transforms the way we disagree with one another. Now, yes, of course, there is still a place for disagreements. There's still a place for not seeing eye to eye. But in the midst of disagreements, we're not disagreeable because we know where they're from and we know the intent of their creator. They are created in the image of God. So how we treat others matters based upon this passage. But more than that, and even a better story, how God treats you matters. Because you need to understand that we're not living in Genesis 1. We're not living in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. So what that means is, is the responsibility that we're called to bear, we don't perfectly bear it. The rationality that we are called to bear, we don't perfectly think it. The relationality that we're called to perfectly uh, you know, live within, we don't do. Because what? We live post-Genesis 3. All of us in this room have been affected by the fall. And so all of us in this room, the image of God is marred, it is blighted, it is in need of renovation, and guess what? You can't do it. Not a person in this room can, in this great self-improvement project, take yourself upon and say, I'm going to restore myself to the original image of God the fall. But there is good news that God, in his infinite wisdom, has seen you just as you are, broken and in disrepair, and he has a plan for your renovation. Do you know this, Christian? Do you know that when you trust him as your Savior and as your Lord, that he begins in you a renovation project? I don't know if some of you are watching HGTV, but there's an old Miss couple, Aaron and Ben Napier, who've gone back to Laurel, Mississippi, outside of Hattiesburg, and they took on this little project that became a small business that's grown in a little empire that now has a television a reality show called Hometown. They go back to Laurel, and they're all of these old houses that had seen their better days decades ago. So young couples, not always just young couples, but couples, individuals come, and they show them three houses, and this one is derelict and in disrepair. This one over here has seen its best days, really in 1950, and this other one that they show them. I mean, they're all in need of tremendous renovation. And they say, which one are you going to pick? And this is the thing that Erin Napier does. This is her trademark on the show. She paints an image of what that house is going to look like after her and her husband, with a little help from their friends, restore it to their vision. So they say, hey, listen, look past what is marred. Look past what is blighted. And let me show you an image of what could be. Do you know the image of what can be in you and in me? Do you know that image is drawn for us? And that image in our sinfulness, 
in our finitude, in our fallenness, God the Father has drawn an image of what we are going to look like, and it is the image of his Son. He tells us that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He tells us that he desires to restore you when you trust him as Savior and Lord to the original intention that he has for you. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Hear me, Christian. God did not send his son to save you, to leave you like you look now. He didn't save you to commend you as you are now, but he saved you to transform you into the image of his son. And so when you say yes to the Holy Spirit, you are saying yes by faith to a Holy Spirit sledgehammer that desires through the duration of your life and into an eternity to tear down those walls of hostility in your heart that have erected. So all the prejudice he's coming after. All the pride he's coming after. All the lust he's coming after. All of the things that we cover up, God's original intention, it is really like that old carpet that we cover up those original hardwoods in that house. And the Holy Spirit, he has a desire to rip it out, to restore you to his original intention. I want you to hear, he's not finished with you yet. He's got grand plans for what you're going to look like, and he has today and tomorrow and for an eternity to make you look like his son. Take hope. You're not finished yet. And that is good news. That actually is the best news. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you that you are a God who has grand plans for our renovation to make us look like the original intent. We thank you that while the image and the likeness of God is within all of us and we matter because we know where we're from, we matter because we know the intent of our creator. That affects the way we talk and treat others, but it affects the way you treat us. Thank you for seeing what we will become, having an image of your son that you are transforming us into. And we know that you, who are faithful to begin this renovation project, will be faithful to see it to its end. We know you're that general contractor that subs out the work of renovation to your Holy Spirit. May we, your children, may we be transformed more and more to your image. It's in your name, the powerful, renovating name of the Holy Spirit that we pray this. Amen.